Now, last week, as we were concluding our time together during the invitation, a 97-year-old man gave his life to Jesus Christ. His name is Frank. Um, Frank is not here today, not feeling real good this week, but that's why we do what we do. That's why we come together week in and week out so that we can dive into God's Word, so that we can worship, so that we can have an opportunity to, to, to grow and be discipled as men and women and students and children, but also so that the lost can come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we want to pray for Frank this week and pray for his caregivers. What we know is this. Um, as I've had opportunity this week to be in conversation with, with Kathy, one of his caregivers, the one thing that she said is, Frank is a different man. There is such a peace about him this week that I've never seen before. And that's what Jesus Christ does. That is the power of the transformation that Jesus Christ does in the heart of men and women that give their lives over to Jesus. Totally different, this man is. We want to pray for him, though. We want to pray that the Lord, as long as he still has oxygen in his lungs to breathe or air to breathe, we want to pray that the Lord will allow us as a faith family to gather around him, to disciple him, and equip him. You know, last week, we looked at one of the most amazing passages of Scripture, I believe, in all the Bible. We looked at the transfiguration of Jesus. We looked at that one event where Jesus pulled back his humanity so that his divine glory could shine through. He took Peter, James, and John with him on that mountain for a prayer service. But what those men got was so much more than a prayer service, wasn't it? They encountered Jesus Christ in all of his glory. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the journey from the mountaintop to the valley floor. And we're going to look first at the conversation that these men had as they were coming down that mountain. And then we're going to look at the chaotic scene that occurred on that valley floor. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, we're going to begin looking in verse 7, and we're going to read together through verse 20. So Matthew 17, 7 through 20. We read this. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them to tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then who, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So we also, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at, the hands, at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, 
and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Our message point this morning is there is a valley between every mountain. That is one reality in life, isn't it? That there is a valley between every mountain. Every single one of us in this room experience both mountaintop highs and valley lows. Those mountaintop moments are some of the greatest moments of our life, and those valleys are some of the most excruciating times of our lives as well. They're hard, aren't they? The valley floor is difficult. Am I right? But both of these are necessary. Both are part of life. David wrote in the 23rd Psalm these words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all of the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All of us in this room are going to spend time on the valley floor. It is going to be ugly at times. It is going to be hard at times. It's going to be some of the hardest days of our lives. But it will also be the place that the Lord is just as present as he is on those mountaintops. I think it's safe to say that we meet the Lord on the mountain and we're used by the Lord in the valley. Life happens in the valley, and we will see that on full display this morning. But before we get to that point, as indicated earlier, let's look at the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples as they are walking down the mountain. So our first point this morning is this, the teaching from the Lord. As these men are walking down that mountain, notice the instruction that the Lord gives these men. In verse 9 we read, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why did Jesus instruct these men to tell no one what they saw until after the resurrection? Did Jesus not come and reconcile fallen man to a holy God? Why didn't Jesus want his full glory to be on display before every single person that walked on the face of the earth or those that were able to get into proximity of him? Why didn't he want his disciples to go out and say, do you realize that underneath that humanity of King Jesus is all of his glory? Why did he not want them to have those conversations? Remember, Jesus had not come to reign supremely on a physical throne, but to reign supremely within the heart of man. In order for that to happen, he had to first endure the cross. He had to first become the sacrificial lamb. He had to first shed his life's blood so that every one of us in this room and everyone that walked with Jesus in the first century could be covered with that blood. Jesus told his disciples to tell no one because the time had not yet come for the world to fully understand 
exactly who he was and what he had come to do. There were some things that Jesus intended to be hidden until after his resurrection. I like what John MacArthur says about this particular passage of Scripture. He says this, The Christ that most Jews of the day were expecting was not the Christ who had come. Instead of coming to conquer, Jesus had come to die. Instead of coming in divine glory, Jesus had come in humble meekness. Instead of coming to deliver the Jews from political bondage, Jesus came to deliver from sin's bondage all men who would trust in him. For the people to have learned then about the experience on the mount would only have incited them to try as they did on other occasions to make Jesus into a king of their own kind to fulfill their immediate selfish and worldly expectations. You remember as we've walked through Matthew together, we have seen on multiple occasions that the people wanted to place Jesus on a physical throne, but Jesus did not come to reign supremely on a throne created by man. He came to reign supremely within the heart of man. And so we see within this passage of Scripture that Jesus is, is wanting his disciples to wait until after the resurrection before all of these things that they saw were, were shared. So Jesus instructs them to tell no one, and then the disciples ask Jesus a question. In verses 10 through 13, we read, And the disciples asked him, Then why do scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. In order to kind of understand this passage of Scripture, we need to look at the last chapter of the Old Testament, the Old Testament book of Malachi. We read these words. Okay, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. You know, it would help us understand this passage of Scripture if we could place ourselves in the first century. If we could place ourselves in, within the context in which these disciples asked this question. They had just seen... Jesus in all of his glory, okay, on full display. They had just seen Jesus have a conversation with both Moses and Elijah up on that mountain. So if we imagine ourselves within this scene and also imagine ourselves um, asking this question a little bit differently. I think if we ask this question a little bit differently within our context, it will help us better understand what was going on. Jesus knew exactly what the disciples were asking. For you and I, it may seem a little confusing. And so I've kind of reworked this question just a little bit. Imagine the question going like this. Jesus, we know that you are the Messiah. And we know that before you, Elijah was to come. But how is that possible when it seems that he came after you? So what the, what the disciples are, are, have just witnessed is they've witnessed Elijah standing with Jesus. And so their interpretation is that Elijah came after Jesus came because they just saw them having a conversation together on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus answers this question by pointing out that Elijah did come and the people did not recognize him. Some of you may think, well, that creates a theological dilemma. 
We don't believe in reincarnation. So how in the world did Elijah come if, 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 if we don't believe in reincarnation? The prophecy in Malachi was never intended to be understood as the reincarnated Elijah coming as a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Zach, Zachariah. And we looked at this back in December when we walked through our, our sermon series. But the Gab, Gabriel appears to Zachariah, who had gone into the temple of the Lord to offer up prayers. While in the temple, Gabriel reveals to Zachariah that he and his barren wife are going to have a child in their old age, and they were going to name that child John. And so we read here in verses 16 and 17, this conversation, Gabriel says, and, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Hear that? He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So right here in this passage, we see that John will be like Elijah and that he will preach a message of reconciliation. Jesus makes it clear that one like Elijah had already come, and he had already experienced physical death. And at this point, the disciples begin to connect the dots. It begins to make sense to them. They realize that Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was beheaded um, by King Herod. And so all of this stuff is beginning to make sense. So they're beginning to figure out that Jesus was talking about John the Baptist being the forerunner of Elijah going in the spirit of John the Baptist as a forerunner for the Messiah. So as the disciples and Jesus were coming down the mountain... That was a conversation that they were having, pretty theological conversation, kind of deep for us if we don't really understand the context in which it was asked. So once they get to the bottom of the mountain, once they go from this mountaintop high, they are going to enter into a very, very chaotic scene. So notice our second point this morning. It is this, the helplessness of the Father. The helplessness of the Father. In verses 14 through 16, again, we read, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. This very story that we, just like last week, is also in the, the gospel of Luke and the gospel of Mark. So, so it helps us as we put all of these stories together to get a full understanding of everything that happened on this particular day. Each of these accounts help us understand what happened on that valley floor. We're told in Luke that a great crowd greeted Jesus when he came down off of the mountain. It must have been a crazy scene all that was going on. You have this father who is desperately trying to, to get these disciples to heal his son. He brought the child to Jesus, but Jesus was not available. And so they turned to the disciples to heal him. The disciples were unsuccessful. We are told in Mark that the scribes were arguing with the disciples. The scene was chaotic at best. All kinds of things were going on in, on this valley floor as as these uh, men are walking down off of that mountain. In the midst of this chaotic valley is the Father. And within the heart of that Father, what we see this morning is despair and defeat. 
Scripture tells us that this father had a son who suffered terribly as a result of seizures. Some of you have loved ones that have suffered terribly as a result of seizures. One writer describes these seizures as particularly this demon within this boy. He wrote these words, A cruel spirit that lies in wait, like a bully waiting to pounce on a kid coming home from school. It sneaks up on the boy, jumps him from behind, and mashes his face into the dirt, all the while delighting in tyranny. This boy was suffering terribly. His life was constantly in danger. And we read in this passage of Scripture that sometimes this demon caused him to fall into a fire. Sometimes this demon would cause him to fall into the water, trying to drown him or burn him to death. And what you can be certain of, this father could not let this boy out of his sight. Because if he ever took his eyes off of this boy, that demon could cause him to fall into a fire or fall into um, the water or even run off of a cliff or something of that. So this man was experiencing despair and he was experiencing defeat as well. He was dejected. He had tried everything he knew to bring relief to his child like any parent would do, right? If something is wrong with one of our children, what are we going to do? We're going to do everything that we can to get them the help that they need. If that means we go to the best doctors in the land, we're going to go to the best doctors in the land. We're going to do everything we can to protect our children and to help our children. That is exactly what we see happening with this father. This father had most likely gone to every doctor that was in the land. He most likely had gone to all of the religious leaders trying to provide relief for his children. He may have even gone to the spiritual gurus of the day or the magicians of the day trying to get help and relief for his son. All to no avail. And then what does he do? He turns to Jesus. Jesus is nowhere to be found, so he turns to his disciples. And what do his disciples do? Nothing. They were unable to heal this boy. No one was able to help this father. His last hope was Jesus. His last hope was Jesus because he had tried everything else he knew to find relief for his son. Some of you may be in this room this morning and you may feel as if there is no hope left in this world. You may feel like you are, are on this valley floor and you're not just on the valley floor, but man, there's already been a grave that's been dug for you and you feel like you're right in the middle of that grave this morning. I want you to know right now there is hope. And that hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this despair, in the midst of this defeat, what does that man do? He turns to Jesus. And if you are experiencing um, hopelessness this morning, I want you to know you too can turn to Jesus. The stories of Jesus' healing ministry has spread far and wide all around Israel and the surrounding countries. There probably would not have been a soul left in all the land that had not heard about Jesus and what Jesus was able to do. The Father had clearly heard how Jesus caused the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lepers were healed, the demonic were set free. This man had to have heard all of these supernatural events that Jesus had performed. 
So as a defeated man, he comes to the only sure one, and that is Jesus for his son to be healed. And notice how Jesus responds to his disciples' inability to heal this man. It's a boy. Notice I've entitled this subpoint the Valley of Frustration. In verses 17 and 18, we read, And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Jesus was frustrated with his disciples right here, wasn't he? He could not um, understand why they had not got into their thick skulls that they were given authority to do everything that they were trying to do as they tried to exercise this demon from this boy. In Matthew chapter 10, we read these words of Jesus as he is sending his disciples out into the street and into the villages. Let's read in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And then we're going to drop down to verse 5. But in verse 1 it says, And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And now drop down to verse 5. We read this. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast out demons you received without praying, give you received without paying, give without pay. Jesus had given these men authority to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse the leopard, and to exercise demons. And we read that right here. He had basically given them the very authority by which he was able to perform all of these different miracles. So it is understandable for Jesus to be frustrated with his disciples, isn't it? It's understandable for Jesus to be frustrated with us when we fail to be obedient to the word that he has given us as a light unto our path. In verse 17 again we read, And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? This expression, O, is a word of of deep anguish. Okay, some of you in this room frequently use that word when you are talking with your children or talking with your grandchildren, maybe talking with a coworker, or if you're like my wife, you use this phrase all the time. And she does with me. She just kind of looks at me. She doesn't even have to say oh anymore. She just looks at me and I just know, oh, I've messed up again. And that's kind of what we see here when Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted, that hurt and the anguish is present as he looks at the disciples and he looks out over this crowd. Jesus was disappointed and hurt with his disciples' inability to carry out what they were commissioned to do. One writer wrote, when Jesus calls them faithless, he is getting to the heart of the matter. It was and is and always a matter of belief. Because the disciples are slow to get this, Jesus wonders how much longer he'll be able to bear with their unbelief. What we get here is we get a picture of exactly what God the Father 
said to the nation of Israel in Numbers 14.11, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. Getting to the heart of the matter, it was the lack of faith that prevented these disciples from healing this boy. But because of their lack of faith, that didn't mean that Jesus wasn't going to show up on that day because Jesus did show up and he healed that boy and exercised that demon. We saw that man's faith on full display as he brought his son to Jesus. And I just wonder, as I, as I was studying and preparing for this message, I wonder how many people within that crowd that day turned to Jesus and placed their faith in Jesus because of that one miracle. Because of the faith of this man bringing his boy to Jesus. How many people trusted in Jesus? Because of our faith, when our faith is on full display, when we're exercising our faith on a daily basis, how many people come to Jesus as a result? How many people could come to Jesus if we would do that? That brings us to our final point this morning. It is this, the helplessness of the disciples. In verses 19 and 20, we read, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The disciples go to Jesus truly seeking to understand why they were unable to heal that boy. What we see here with the disciples is a personal conviction because of their faithlessness. Conviction of faith, faithlessness is our subpoint. If Jesus said that they would exercise demons in Matthew chapter 10, then you and I should believe that in the past, these disciples had exercised demons as well as performed all of the different miracles that Jesus said that they would do. What was different about this boy's demon? What was different about the condition of the disciples' heart when they were commissioned and sent out in Matthew chapter 10? You know, we don't know everything, but we clearly know enough. The issue, as Jesus clearly communicates here, was their little faith. Another way of looking at this phrase, little faith, is poverty of faith. You and I, should not look at this passage of Scripture and think to ourselves, well, the disciples had lost their faith. Disciples had not lost their faith because the source of their faith was standing right in front of them. It is very possible that these men attempted to exercise that demon within that boy in their own strength and proceed power instead of under the strength and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. They just may have become too confident in their own abilities. How often has that been said of us? That we have become overly confident in our own abilities, and as a result of becoming overly confident in our own abilities, we missed out on what Jesus wanted us to do because we didn't depend and rely on his ability to work in and through us. That's kind of what I think is going on here. I think that the disciples had, had become a little bit too relaxed in their healing ministry. 
They may very well have tried to exercise that demon under their own authority instead of under the strength and the authority given to them by Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When is Jesus' power on its greatest display in our lives? When we are weak. When we die to ourselves so that Jesus can live in and through us. The disciples, once again, I believe, became overly confident in their own ability. And they took their eyes off the source of their power and strength. And because of that, they were unable to perform the miracle that they had done before. And so notice the next point. Notice the source of faithfulness. The source of these men's faithfulness. In verse 20 we read, He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus is the source of our faith. Things of this world are not the source of our faith. Our, 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 our children are not the source of our faith. Our co-workers are not the source of our faith. Our spouses are not the source of our faith. Jesus is the source of our faith. Back in Matthew chapter 13, we looked at the parable of the mustard seed. We talked about how small things make lasting impacts. Little faith can accomplish great things when the object of our faith is Jesus. Right? Little faith can accomplish great things when the object of our little faith is Jesus. Within this passage of Scripture, there's, there is a phrase that is often misunderstood. What does it mean that, that we can move mountains if we have little faith? The faith of a mustard seed. What does that mean? It's important to understand that Jesus is using an illustration here. He is not telling his disciples that if they have little or even great faith, they will be able to move a literal physical mountain. There is no evidence in Scripture of mountains being moved. Moving mountain was a, it was a Jewish colloquialism. To a Jew of Jesus' day, a mountain is a metaphor indicating an impossible task. That is why Jesus concludes this statement with nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Here's what we are able to pull from this passage. When we have faith, even the size of a mustard seed, we will be able to do astonishing things for God. God is the God of the impossible. And if you are in this room this morning and you are not a believer, I want you to know that God can take you where you're at, how you are today, and he can set you free just like he set my friend Frank free last week. God is the God of the impossible. If you are a believer in this room, then you have within you the source of power to do the impossible. These words are not empty words. They are heavenly promises. You and I are meant to move mountains. We were created to see the impossible made 
possible. One writer said, if we are not seeing mountains move, we are living beneath our means. We are living as paupers when we have millions in our heavenly bank account. If you are here this morning, and you, like me, oftentimes say that my faith is weak, my faith is little, then all of us need to turn to Jesus Christ just as the disciples did, as we read in Luke seventeen five, and we must pray to the Father to increase our faith, to increase our faith. William Carey, who was no small man of faith, challenged the British Baptist to do something that seemed totally beyond their grasp. He said, expect great things, attempt great things. That should be at the heart of each and every one of us in this room. Let us attempt great things for the Lord. And when we do that, we will truly see God do the impossible through us. God is the God of the impossible. He can save every soul. He can exercise every demon. He can heal every sickness. He can mend every marriage. He can reconcile every broken relationship and friendship. And he can solve every financial dilemma. But most importantly, he will forgive every sin. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for, for, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 3.23 says that All of us are sinners. Every single one of us are sinners. But we serve a God that is the God of the impossible. He can take our sin and he can remove it as far as the east is from the west. And when he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west and we enter into a relationship with him and we call on him to be the Lord of our life, Scripture tells us that he will save us. You may be here this morning. And you may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you were to die today, you do not know where you would spend eternity. That's you this morning. I'm going to be standing here at the front. And just like Frank got out of the aisle last week and he came down here and and met me and said that he was ready to give his life to Jesus, if that's you this morning, you come. You may be here this morning and you've been visiting this church a while and the Lord is leading you to become a member of Friendship Baptist Church. And we welcome you this morning. God is the God of the impossible, isn't he? Say that with me. God is the God of the impossible. One more time. God is the God of the impossible. God can do impossible things, what man deems as impossible, through us. There's no mountain outside the doors of this church are too big for our God. There is no sickness too great for our God. There is no financial problem that he cannot handle. There is no relationship that he cannot mend. God is the God of the impossible. Let's turn to him and let's pray to him. And let's ask him to do impossible things in and through us. Let's stand together and I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning just acknowledging, Father, that I am knowledge, Father. I'm the first one to admit that so often in my life, Lord, I am a weak man. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a faithless man. I, I, I try to do things under my own strength and my own perceived power instead of turning to the true power source of Jesus Christ. And Father God, I know that I'm not alone in this room. Father, I know that we all try to do everything 
so often within our perceived abilities. But Father, help us increase our faith. Make us faithful people, faithful to your word and faithful to your work and faithful to your mission. Father, I know that in a room this size this morning, Lord, that all of us are dealing with our own things this morning. Father, there may be some in this room that have yet to receive you as their Lord and Savior, and I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. I pray that today will be the day that they step out in faith and they call out to you and ask you to be the Lord and Savior of their lives and they begin this mission, their life mission, as your disciple. Father, there may be some here this morning that have been visiting this church and you're leading them to become a part of friendship. And Lord, we don't know what decision needs to be made, but I know that you do. And so we ask that you move right now. For us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.